Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Listen, everybody needs to stay caffeinated this time of year. Dirty Duck Coffee. It's the way we start our morning out here every single day with the Missouri Boat Ride Blend. It's a nice uh, pecan flavor, pecan praline. Put it in my thermos with a little dash of peppermint mocha, white chocolate sometimes, you know. Get a little it's, like, it's like I'm at Starbucks, Joe. Get a little fruity on me. I love the Suns Up, Guns Up t-shirts and stuff. They got some cool swag. Check them out at DirtyDuckCoffee.com. Next, we are brought to you by Mr. Corey with Double T British Kennel. Oh, great dogs. Corey's got some great dogs out there right now. Uh, we we ran them last year. Uh, fan, phenomenal dogs. Uh, they're great, great house dogs, great pets, but they also have a ton of drive in the field. So if you're looking for a puppy, a starter dog, finished dog, whatever you need, head over to BritLabs.com. Contact Corey over there. Even if you just have a question, you know, something maybe you're uh, – Doing your own thing and you need uh, some advice from a professional, Corey's always willing to lend a helping hand. So. A great, a very good person. Great dogs. Highly recommend BritLabs.com. That's Double T British Kennels. Next, we're brought to you by Ducks Unlimited. They just finished their Into the Vault sale. They crushed all the records. Uh, more money for conservation and wetland habitat. Listen, get involved somehow. Start a chapter. Join a chapter. Whatever you've got to do, Ducks Unlimited, put your... Uh, dollars to work and they're the leader in wetland conservation for a reason they're great people we had jimbo robinson out here phenomenal guy david schusler great great people and they do a lot of work on behalf of waterfowl hunters from texas up into canada they've, they've always got our best interests at heart so they've got a new thing support them. right now make a year-end donation to ducks limited and choose your gift so check them out at ducks ducks.org next we're brought to you by lucky duck i have ran the new spinner the one the uh, that's got the black and white wings. And it makes a big difference because ducks can see that black and white flash, like Jeff's been saying for years on this podcast. They can see it better. So we've been doing those. We've had a couple of duck hunts that have gone really, really well. Uh, they've got a new rotary out that we've ran a couple times, had some success. They've got kennels that are five-star crash test rated, so you can feel confident whenever you put your uh, four-legged hunting buddy in the back of your pickup truck in a kennel. Something bad were to happen, they're protected. Extend your hunting season. Everybody, whenever the waterfowl season's over, go out there and get you a Lucky Duck varmint call and start shooting them coons. Help the turkeys out. Help the quail population out. Shoot the coons. And that's at LuckyDuck.com. You can get whatever you need. The new spinner, A-frames, they got a lot of cool stuff for 2023, 2024. So check them out, LuckyDuck.com. We're also brought to you by Boss Shot Shell. Bismuth is the way to go. Get that lead out of here, and it's a lot better than steel. And if you want some Boss swag, you need to call the shop and you can order it direct from them at the shop. And that's at BossShotShells.com. Also, get ready to stock up. Got turkey loads coming. Get the Boss Tom. Turkey season, believe it or not, is only four months away. It's not very far away. I am in love with the uh, War Chief. I mean, it is it is hard-hitting. Uh, a lot of research and development went into this shotgun shell, and it makes a difference out in the field. So... Also, we're brought to you by Pacific Calls. You can use our promo code. BHP25 will save you 25% at checkout. That is site-wide. Whatever you want, whether you're getting honker calls, spec calls, duck calls, turkey calls, whatever you're getting. Swag, it still applies. 25% off. There's nobody else out there that is going to give you 25% off. I mean, it's a, it's a steal, and everybody needs to take advantage of it. PacificCustomCalls.com. You can fill up your shopping cart. Use the promo code at the very end, BHP25, 25% off. They are great guys. You can always get a hold of them if you have any issues. Use the promo code BHP25. 
we would uh, we would love to see your lanyard full of Pacific calls. Next, we are brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries. The hunting has turned here, so I am now running uh, some of the fully flocked specs. And got to tell you, first couple of times made a difference. Birds were actively trying to get to the fully flocked decoys. I'm a fan. I know what I'm ordering next year. More fully flocked decoys. DiveBombIndustries.com. They're great people over there. And they have been with us since basically the beginning of this show. So head over there. Good people. Take Go check it out. Cody Stokes, Asher Tolliver, done a great job. DiveBombIndustries.com. Next, we're brought to you by Mossberg, the Pro Waterfowl 940. Got a choice around here at Stanford Hunting Outfitters. Uh, it handles the, handles the uh, fine sand that we have out here. It plays fits on a lot of guns, but not the Mossberg 940. It's a great gun. <clears throat> Even Maddie shoots it. Maddie Robertson. I mean, how could you not? How could you not trust him? I've been shooting the twenty gauge over under and the twenty eight gauge over under. Great right. guns, great product. That's Mossberg.com. Check them out, and you can buy them at almost all retail outlets. I'll have Mossberg guns. Put it to your shoulder. Take it for a test drive. You'll love it. Next, the product of the year. It is. It has changed my dog. Hemp Hill Farm, CBD. Lou will fail a drug test, but he is he is <laughs> he is pain and ache free. He calms down sooner in the morning. He's always had a little bit of an issue with whining. And I'm telling you what, after one or two retrieves, he's he's hitting his stride. And I also notice whenever he wakes up in the morning, he's not stiff and achy. I give him uh, the recommended dose of CBD before we go out every single morning. And I'm a fan. I really am. Uh, they've got roll-on, so that's just for pets. They have a they have a, a specific pet blend. Uh, they also have stuff for humans. They have gummies. They have roll-ons. They have salves. Phenomenal products. If you have the ouchies or something's you know got a little lingering issue, head over to Hemp Hill Farm Farm with a ph uh, dot com, and they also have a promo code. BHP saves you 20%, I believe. And 30% off your very first order today. If you sign up for the recovery relief rest, they get 30% off. I take two of the gummies every night. Well, I take about one to two. Sometimes I take one and a half, sometimes I take one or two. It knocks me out. I go to bed and I get about six to seven hours of solid rest and I wake up and I'm not and I'm not sluggish. It doesn't give you the after effects of like taking a Benadryl or a Tylenol PM. It's better for you and it's Hemp Hill Farm. That's H-E-M-P-H-I-L-L. P-H-A-R-M.com. Check it out. HempillFarm.com. Jeff's a fan. Next, we're brought to you by the Looking Glass Podcast. Head over to their Patreon. Logan and Rebel will be out here next month. They're great guys. Hilarious. All their episodes are two hours plus, so it's great for those long road trips. Uh, they're a lot of fun to listen to, and they're incredible guys. Really, really fun people to be around. Uh, just go to Patreon, type in the Looking Glass Podcast. It'll all pop up, and then you can... Uh, do what you need to do. Send over a little bit of money, and you'll be—you'll have their entire uh, library at your disposal. Yes, shingear.com. I wear the shin boots. I'm wearing the scout boots right now. I have wore them for three months straight, basically. I wear them every day. I wore them in Boston. I wear them in the airport. They're comfortable, just like wearing a set of Nikes, without all the politically correctness. At shingear.com. Also brought to you by MLR Graphics in Breckenridge, Texas. It's time for softball season is right around the corner. Believe it or not. Little League Baseball. 
If you need your kids to get the best jerseys and equipment you can have, MLR, MLR Graphics in Breckenridge, Texas, can take care of you. They do all of our shirts, hoodies, caps, everything here. They can take care of you. Off. You want to outfit your, your, your company, whatever you want to do, hats, T-shirts, caps, jackets, the whole thing, it's MLRGraphics.com. Also, we're brought to you by Alpha Outdoor Specialties, maker of the Stanfield Stool and the Blind Caddy. I, it has saved my back. The Stanfield Stool has uh, sitting it every single morning, and it is a dream. We run the Lucky Duck 2x4 blind, so we have four chairs per blind. They are extremely comfortable. So if you want to uh, kick it up a notch in your A-frame or just your regular blind, I suggest you head over to alphaoutdoorspecialties.com, look at the Stanfield Stool, and if you want to stay organized in the blind, get the Blind Caddy. Alpha Outdoor Specialties. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. Uh, we got a couple dates in January, but not very many. You better get on the horn right now. 940-658-3172. Jeff will answer the call. He'll uh, call you back if he doesn't answer. Send an email, goose at westtex.net. Get some dates. Nebraska. The last week in Nebraska's duck season. I've got some dates left. If you want to go shoot some birds on the Platte River, holler at me. And that's like I said, Andy said. That's stanfieldhunting.com or 940-658-3172, and I do answer my own phone. Thank you so much for being a part of this. It has been another record-setting couple of months. We couldn't do it without you. God bless you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is an episode I'm excited about. Uh, Dr. Mike Chamberlain from the University of Georgia, uh, Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram. He's on with us today, and we talk about everything turkey hunting. Everything turkey-related, turkey science fascinating episode i geeked out quite a bit so um enjoy this episode if you're gonna if you're gonna be at nwtf mike will be there we will be there uh go shake his hand tell him you enjoyed him on the podcast come up say hello to us i loved i'm, I'm ready to meet everybody out there shake your hand uh bullshit with you a little bit i'm so excited so we'll see you at nwtf enjoy this episode here he is dr mike chamberlain all right here we go Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast, brought to you by Pacific Game Calls. I'm Jeff Stanfield with the world-famous Andy Shaver. They will not be at NWTF next week, so you just got to go online if you're wanting anything Pacific Calls related. Pacific will not be there? No, I talked to Trevor. They're going to be... It doesn't matter. They're somewhere not, else. They're going to be somewhere else. So Okay. All so, right. I am excited about this one. Messaged you about a year ago, and then you got back to me during waterfowl season. So kudos on you for going that far into your DMs. Uh, Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram, Dr. Mike Chamberlain. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Andy. How about yourself? I am excited. I am excited. It is, uh, you know, it feels a lot like spring. It's a fall spring here in Texas, um, but it has got me excited for turkey season. 
Me too. Me too. I'm, uh, I actually looked in the closet this morning, much to my wife's chagrin and noticed two of my vests that were laying up on the shelf. And I started messing with calls and she's like, Nope, don't start. Don't even, don't even start. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost time. I know it's a fall spring here in Texas. It's probably going to be really, really cold in March. Let's talk about that. Well, how does weather affect the birds right now? Because like I said, it's 65, it's sunny, it's beautiful here in Texas. Are birds getting fired up based off of weather or is it all photo? Is it all amount of sunlight in a day? Well, you'll see birds that, yeah, with, with kind of warming days and, and late winter, you'll see some birds that will start acting like they're a bit friskier than they should be mostly just toms the the hens are doing their thing and they're they're ignoring everything around them other than they're just trying to survive and build up reserves for for spring so it's it's mostly photo period driven from a breeding perspective but yeah these warm days you definitely see toms get get friskier and their testosterone levels will increase a little bit they'll start strutting gobbling you know, playing a fool, even though nobody's paying attention, really. Right. So when do things ramp up? Because I've always heard that peak breeding times are before hunting season, so that some hens can already be bred. If that, if that, am I, am I explaining that correctly? Well, it really depends. I mean, in, in some states that, that is the case. In other states, it's, it's not in that the season's open in many, in some cases, before breeding really even starts, uh, it really just depends. But, but in a general sense, yes, um, the idea is to open open hunting at a time when a lot of your breeding has already been completed, or at least it, it's in the process of of, of being completed. Right, because we open up here April first weekend in April every year. Mm-hmm. And I always, I, I mean, I always notice a ton of hens with Tom. I, I still see them in their big time in their winter flocks here. Yeah. And basically what happens is you, you've got the, the groups, the, the big winter groups will start splitting up early March to mid March. And, and what they, they'll go from say groups of 20 hens to groups of say eight, mm-hmm. And those groups of hens will have one or two or sometimes more toms that are shadowing them. Um, once they get in those smaller groups, that's when breeding usually starts right, right about that point. And it, but it takes, you know, the, the breeding season for, for wild turkeys is, is, is not a, Hey, it's, it happens over a two day period and then everybody, everybody starts nesting. I mean, it's, it's a process and these hens will copulate repeatedly with, with these toms. It's not just a, Hey, I'm going to breed one time with him and then I'll go nest. That's, that's not really what the way the bird works. Yeah. You know, turkey hunting, it's one of those things you either are really, really into it or you don't do it at all. I'm really, really into it. Jeff over here, he's he'll sit for about 15 minutes, and if it hadn't happened, <laughs> then it's time to go do something else. Yeah, it's not a fun sport. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it's it's so polarizing in that manner that you're either all in on this thing. There's there's not a whole lot of casual turkey hunters out there. I don't feel like. No, I agree with you. There, I don't. I'm not around many people that 
just kind of go right. occasionally and yeah, it is what it is. You know, most people that I meet are either, no, I don't turkey hunt or yeah, I've been once or twice or they, hell yeah, I go, I go, I go every time I can, you know, I live and breathe it and it's all I think about in the spring. So there's not really much in between. You know, we do, we, we have an outfit here in Texas and it's seven days a week waterfowl season. We start in September with dove hunting and that's mainly weekends. And then November gets here and it's seven days a week chasing ducks and geese. I enjoy turkey hunting so much more because that's kind of my period where, um, number one, the weather's usually pretty nice and it's just kind of my relaxation time. If that makes sense. Cause Mm I, I can go out there in the afternoon. I don't have to freeze my balls off. I don't have to be in knee deep mud. I don't have to set out 50 dozen decoys. I mean, I can just go out there, sit on a stump, and if it happens, it happens. And if not, I got to watch the sunset in Texas. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, I, I kind of look at – I've talked about this before. I've been asked about this before. It's like, you know, what is it about turkey hunting that, that you find so addictive? And I think in some ways it's just the time yeah. of year. It's, you know, you, you go through winter and you're just like, damn, this – I really need to mm-hmm. see the sun. I, you know, I really need to not be cold and, and yeah, you, you, you get to go watch the world wake up in a time of year where it's like you're being reborn. Yes. Where everything is being reborn. And I, to me, that's one of the best parts about turkey hunting is, yeah, the, you know, the weather is typically better, but I think it's just, it, it feels like you're coming out of a fog. Right when you get to turkey season and it's, you know, I, I have some good friends and, and I love to fish, but I, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, fanatical fisherman, but I have some buddies that that's all they do, you know, and they, they think this, they, they say the same thing. It's like, will I go bass fish when it's 30 degrees and the wind's blowing? Yeah, you damn right. I will. Will I enjoy it? Uh, yeah, I guess. But two months later when it's 70 out and it's sunny and, I just feel like, you know, I'm alive. I feel like I'm being born again. And that's, that's how I look at turkey hunting. Is there any research being done? Cause, uh, for a while there, we were hunt, we were waterfowl hunting in Southwestern Oklahoma. Um, or it, it's or North of, uh, Altus. Yes. Yeah. North of Altus about an hour. And our first couple of years up there, there were times where we would be driving by looking for geese and we would hit the brakes because there'd be so many turkeys in the field fast forward Mm -hmm. about three years they're not there like not only are they not there they're not like there's zero turkeys in some of these places so obviously there was a big die-off but nobody can pinpoint we don't know yeah we don't know and there's actually a research project that has has started in in oklahoma and multiple parts of the state that's being directed by oklahoma state university um but yes that the observation you just shared is one that's not specific just to to oklahoma the the same observations have been conveyed in kansas and nebraska and various other states in the midwest that you know my birds are just gone they're not here anymore and and we don't know what the root we don't think there is a root cause like one thing that we can put our finger on but 
but yeah, that's a that's a common that's a common observation, unfortunately. And it and it and if you look, you know, Oklahoma and many other states out in the Midwest have have started research projects to try to understand what is going on, and they've also made regulations changes the past few years to to try to stem the harvest a little bit not understanding exactly why those populations have declined so dramatically. Do we, uh, it's gotta be a man-made problem. Don't you think like maybe like a herbicide or a pesticide that they ingested somehow? No, we don't know. We don't know. And, and there's a lot of work ongoing right now, uh, looking at disease issues, um, looking at potential pathogens, you know, is there something that these that these populations are being exposed to that are causing death, causing reproductive failures, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Trying to understand this and because it, and it's not specific just to even the Midwest. I mean, I talk to people all the time that are that are in the southeast or northeast or or mid Atlantic and. Some of them will tell you, hey, I'm, I'm still seeing plenty of turkeys and everything looks good. And then others will tell you, my birds are not here anymore. Or they're, you know, they're down half or more than half based on just what I'm seeing with my own eyes. And that's why, to a large degree, I have a job. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to provide agencies with information on, you know, what is going on with our birds. I've noticed... I've been in the hunting business for over 30 years and I've been to a lot of, in my lifetime, I've been to a lot of places. And when I was a kid growing up, we used to go to around Sonora, Texas, and you would see mm-hmm. flocks of a hundred, 150 turkeys were not that unusual. And there was a lot of them. Turkey, the, the deer lease was just full of turkeys. And where there was water, you had lots and lots of turkeys. When I came up here and I started guiding around, we, we, our lodge is right on the river. There was turkeys here all the time. You would see 25 to 50 and flocks all the time in the, in the summer and in the fall. We don't see those hardly anymore here. Right. And then in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. where we hunted 10 years ago, there was three, four, five hundred birds in flocks. I mean, huge flocks of turkeys. And now there's four or five birds there. So it's everything has happened has happened in the last 10 years. And yeah. they, they want to blame it on the coons because coons are definitely a problem. There's no doubt about it. There's no fur market no more. But you can go wipe out all the coons and you still, your turkeys aren't there. And we had coons back in Daniel Cro- Davy Daniel Cro- uh, Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone days, and we had tons of turkeys, and we had tons of uh, there wasn't that much fur being taken. So, do you think it's got a lot to do with the varmints? It, I mean, certainly predation is part of the is part of the equation. I, when I'm asked this question, whether you're in Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, wherever you're at your turkey population in your state and your local area kind of look at it like it's a football game. Um, and there are positions on the field that influence the outcome of every game, whether it's the offensive line, defensive line, quarterback, whatever it is. The, so in a turkey world, those would be um, predation, habitat, harvest, disease, these, these things that we know influence turkeys everywhere. The, the relative contribution that, that each one of those positions has on the outcome differs from one spot to the next. So in, in one area, you know, maybe ha- habitat loss and degradation are, are driving the ship and, and then maybe five counties over, you tack on, um, 
you know, basically conversion of say hardwood forest to pine forest, and that's exacerbating the issues. And so you've got some of these players on the field, if you will, that are impacting the outcome everywhere. But then in some places you may have positions that only influence the outcome in certain areas, say in one game, uh, in one year. And those are the things that are really problematic, such as, you know, could there be pathogens that these birds are being exposed to? Could there be disease issues that popped up from, from something in the environment? Those are the, the things that we really struggle to understand. The, the big, the, the most influential players in the game, we have a pretty good sense, whether it's, it's habitat issues or predation issues. We know that predators matter. They've mattered forever, to your, to your point. Turkeys have dealt with predators for, for eons. What we do know pretty clearly is at this point, we're, we're seeing many of these predators that are at apex levels. In other words, we have more of them than we've, than we've had, particularly when you look at, at species like raccoons and coyotes that, that largely are not persecuted anymore. We don't have a, a fur market for the most part. And then you have species that, that are impactful to turkeys like raptors like you know birds of prey that that are are no longer persecuted for obvious reasons and are protected in our society so from a turkey's perspective the landscape looks very different than it looked 30 years ago or 40 years ago when we were restoring turkeys so now the we're, i call it a new normal we're we're just in a new normal and we're going to have to try to figure out how to navigate that that new reality which is why there's so much research going on so raptors will play a part in uh turkey they'll prey on turkeys is it just the young ones or will they nut up and go after a, a mature hen or something like that oh birds of prey are can be problematic to to adults as well in fact uh, great horned owls are a very common predator of adult birds they kill toms and hens really i did not know that uh, yeah they kill them on the roost primarily really well, they, yeah. do, they just swoop yeah, very, down very and common. just the big talons come into Like, how do they do that? Well, you know, owls are badass. If you, if you watch them when they, when they forage, um, what it appears based on our field observation. So, you know, we'll have a, we'll have a Tom that for instance is wearing a GPS unit on his back. Um, we're tracking, we know when he stops moving, the unit tells us that he's dead. Mm-hmm. So we, we go find him immediately. And what it looks like happens is the owl hits the bird in the tree. You, you see the bird will be, let's say, 30 or 40 feet from the tree that he was roosted in. There's a plume of feathers from where there was contact, and the owl rides the bird to the ground. And in many cases, decapitates Holy the bird. Holy shit. They're mean as hell, but not always, but a lot of times they, they decapitate the bird. And then what, and if anybody that listens to this has seen this, now, you know, if you find a dead Turkey laying there that doesn't have a head, that's a great horned owl. Or if they don't remove the head, sometimes what they'll do is once they kill the bird, you know, of course there'll be massive trauma around the neck where, where they held the bird and killed the bird. But what they'll usually do then is is stand on top of the bird's breast, peel the skin back, and then strip the meat Jeez. from the birds. 
carcass. What's interesting to me is sometimes they kill the bird and they don't consume any of it. Really? So, yeah. So it's not always a, I'm hungry. I, this is just my suspicion. This is my speculation. So take it for what it's worth is I suspect what happens is the owl hears, at least with toms, they hear the bird gobbling. And in some cases it's a territorial response. You've got this obnoxious 20 pound bird that's, that's vocalizing in my, in my core area here and I don't like it. So I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And, and I think that's probably what happens when you just find, you know, when we go find one of our birds and he's just laying there dead with, with no head, the owl just attacked him and killed him to, just to do vin, it. Just they're, a big old vendetta. They're mean as shit. They want, they also wipe out a lot of pheasants. Horned owls are yeah. crazy. They, I mean, and if you if you think about a, a horned owl, you know they're not huge right. animals. But if you know, imagine being a turkey and sitting in a tree, and it's it's just started to get daylight. You're starting to gobble. You feel safer in that tree than any part yeah. of your home range, right? I mean, that's why they roost off the ground is because they feel safe there. You have no idea anything's coming after you. And then suddenly you get hit with a ton of bricks. And, you know, it, it and I, to me, it, it kind of makes sense. I mean, that, that owls can be pretty effective predators because they just blindside you. Yeah. You know, whop, you get hit. And the next thing you know, you, it's over. You know, um, one of the, one of these places on the river that Jeff was talking about, I, I noticed it was a, uh, wasn't an owl. It was like, um, Oh, uh, not a, it wasn't a water turkey, kind of like an egret maybe, but it, it moved in this, this piece of property that we've, I've hunted it several years and I went out there from one year to the next and where they were roosting that the year before, I noticed this big nest of like egrets kind of, kind of like a crane, but not really. So they moved them out and they moved, they pushed those turkeys a couple miles in on this property. And huh. I mean, I don't know what happened, but obviously there was a territory dispute and this little fishing bird won. Yeah. And you know, with turkeys, I mean, particularly Rios, their roost are, first of all, they don't have a lot of roost. Yes. Rios, unlike say Easterns have proportionally much fewer roost available to right. them. And so if you lose one, that is, that's a dramatic possibility for for a rio because you know like some of the the monitoring we've done of rios in south texas they may only have two roost in their yep. home range you know you take one of them away and that you know that has to influence the bird because it, you can in my world we call it central place foraging but all it means is you know they can only move so far from that roost in a day to to then right. return to the roost so you basically drop a pin on top of that roost and draw a circle around it. And that's, that's the only place a turkey could exist. So you wipe that roost out or occupy it with another animal. I mean, the bird loses the, you know, the turkey loses. I saw, I was at the King ranch probably early eighties and driving down the road, but right that parallels with the King ranch going to South Padre and every 
uh, they had the big electric lines there, the big the big uh, metal looking poles. Yeah, it's got the the bar that comes across the middle, and there's another pole, the real big transformer lines. And every one of them had turkeys roosting on them. Every one of them. And I thought uh-huh. that's a perfect uh-huh. roost. It's a metal bill, deal. Right. A predator can't crawl up there, so the only thing that can hurt them is an owl or an eagle. That's it. Nothing else can get to them up there other than lightning. But every one of them, you would see where these turkeys had adapted to getting out of the trees, and they went up the, to those places. I don't know. They were safer there for sure. I don't think they could have a nest up there though. But they nest on the ground, don't they? Yes. They do. Yeah, they do. And w- to your point, we've seen that with with rios in areas where uh they're losing roost sites and there have been man or woman made roost where you just make make a roost for them that's like a telephone you know pole with slats coming off of it like you, a transmission line like you just talked about and they will readily use those um which is good because that you know the loss of roost sites is one is is a real problem for for rios and parts of their range, particularly with cottonwoods declining, mm-hmm. which are which are a primary roost tree in many parts of Rio range, the loss of cottonwoods is is problematic for for turkeys in that part of the world. Why are the cottonwoods going away? Because now that you said that we used to have them along the river here, and like at one of our playa lakes, all the playa lakes in our area used to have cottonwoods all around them. They're all gone. Are they just a twenty to fifty year tree? No, there's disease issues that are affecting them. I'm sorry, I'm not an expert on what the specifics of it, but the bottom line is there's a there's a disease issue that's affecting cottonwoods. Because we don't have we used to it's have killing, them, it's killing them. everywhere yeah. there was water. There used to be cottonwoods around here. Now that you said that, they're gone. Now. All of them are gone now, and it's been just in the last uh-huh. five to ten years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a real problem where where Rio's. Are primarily using cottonwoods, which is a lot of their a lot of the subspecies range. Well, that tree that I was talking about down where the the fish eating bird took it over, it was a cottonwood yes. tree, and it's gone now. I bet you. No, it's still there. Is it? It's okay. still there, but um, yeah, it, it's it's the only one in that area. Like you got to go <clears throat> another mile or so in either direction to find uh, another cottonwood tree. But that's what it was. It was a cottonwood tree, and like I said, I could get up on a bluff. There's a bluff that I can overlook it. And year before, that was the tree. Everything kind of stemmed off of it, and then went out there the next year in March, and I'd be damned, they weren't there. I thought they were all dead. I was like, "Well, this is great." <clears throat> now I can't find my turkeys. <laughs> yeah, that does suck. Um, and yeah. that's what that's what I like about Rios is it's consistent. The roost doesn't really ever change that much because it can't. Oh yeah, yeah. It- I, I'm not going to say that there's, I've never met a turkey that was easy to hunt. Yeah. So don't, don't ever. And I've gotten my, my tail kicked by Rio's just like anything else. But I agree with you. It is, it is helpful when you pretty much know where to start. Now from there, God only knows, but, uh, that's one of the reasons I, I, I go to the De- South Dakota and Nebraska every year um, have gotten to be good friends with a, a guy up there that, that leases properties. And, and one of the things I love the most about hunting, particularly in the prairies, is that, you know, you got these little pockets of turkeys and there may not be birds for five miles, but then there's a group of birds and you pretty much know where to start and where to mm-hmm. end. It really, and, and it, and you can scout those birds. 
you know, you can almost like you, I know I used at, in a previous life, I was about as die hard of a, a duck and goose hunters as there, as there was, I'm no, I'm no longer that person, but I wouldn't be married still if, if I was, <laughs> um, but you know, scouting for ducks, you know, there's, that's about as much fun as you can have. And cause you find the birds and you're, you're in so anticipating the next morning and that, you know, in some places you can scout turkeys the same way. And I, I just enjoy that really enjoy it. So what was it about turkeys? Like how, how did you fall in this career path where that's your field of expertise? Literally just stupid luck. I, um, so I applied to graduate school and in, in my world, graduates, most graduate students, you work on a research project of some kind and you're paid, you're paid a pittance to, to conduct field research. The, the, the study itself is funded by say a state agency or, or, or whatever. Well, in my case, I applied and the professor that accepted me called me and he said, you're the top candidate that, that I have for three different projects. So you pick which one you want to work on. So the first one was a wood duck project. Um, the second was a fox squirrel project of all things. And, and then he says, and I've got this, this wild turkey project and it's in, and he explained it. And I said, Oh man, I definitely, the turkeys are the way to go because I, I grew up, you know, as I wasn't a fanatical turkey hunter as a kid, but I really enjoyed it. And, um, and we, we fall hunted mostly at, at that time. Spring hunting was just gaining popularity. Tell you how old I am. So I started studying turkeys and the first one I caught, that was it. The first time I shot a rocket net over one and ran out there and grabbed it and got to start tracking them with radio telemetry and figuring out how they behave. That was it. Uh, and so I did my master's research on turkeys. I then was offered a, a PhD position studying turkeys and, and predators, actually things that eat turkeys. I left graduate school with, with my doctorate and went to work at, at Louisiana state university. And one of the first projects that I, that the state agency funded for me or with me was a wild turkey study. And I've been studying turkeys since 1993 every year of my career um i just kind of i kind of fell into it and and honestly around the early 2000s when we thought everything was good with turkeys uh agencies stopped funding research projects and you saw turkey research just plummet nobody was doing it but i was and it was because uh to their credit the louisiana department of wildlife and fisheries were, they were interested in continuing to study what at the time was the most popular uh, hunting area, public hunting area in the state of Louisiana from a, from a turkey hunting perspective. They wanted to keep studying that population, so they, they kept funding work. And then fast forward to you know the last decade or so when populations really started to decline, suddenly, you know, now it, it I do other work, but 95% of everything that I do is turkey related. So are there any, where are the sections in the nation where the turkey population is stable or even on the rise? 
the northeast and the upper midwest um the northeast in particular there are there appear to be areas where turkeys are doing quite well um there are if if you go out west you know some of the states out west are not seeing or or not reporting or not seeing the types of declines we're we're seeing in the south and the east and, and particularly in the midwest as well i think it you know and this this is this is unfortunate but one of the things we have never known is how many turkeys are out there right. we have no we have no clue and that really hamstrings us because we don't we don't have benchmarks we you know we do have data that are very compelling such as number of turkeys observed you know per mile driven or number of poults observed per hen in the summer which tells you how productive the population is we have metrics like that and and across much of the species range those have declined those those metrics have declined but then you go talk to someone in for instance you know you go to a a spot in wyoming and there's so damn many turkeys that their depredation permits are issued to kill them because there's just so there's so many birds uh you go to parts of the northeast which i think is really interesting and you go to residential areas and, and suburban areas where turkeys are a problem there's so many birds that it's a problem and uh i've always laughed and said well if you could take some folks from the southeast some diehard turkey hunters and we could fix that problem you know we we can fix that but but i i hope that answers your question yeah. there are some places where things look pretty good and but there are a lot of places where the you know the declines have been pretty obvious do you think that we just got to a point here uh in a lot of these places where turkey populations are falling that the the ecosystem just could not sustain that population and that's why we saw the the crater yes yeah and what we in many ways we th- what has happened in some areas i'm not going to paint the huge broad brush right. but in you know we 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 released turkeys decades ago into vacant habitat like there were no other turkeys there and we released them but but think back you know i'm 52 years old and and i i can remember as a kid um what the landscape looked like there were hardwood forests everywhere i grew up in virginia and there were hardwood forests everywhere and there were there were places that i can now drive to that are nothing but a sea of concrete that were, was turkey habitat and i would see turkeys there all the time in places in fact right across from the high school I went to, there was a field that I, I distinctly remember seeing turkeys in that field. And from that spot, which is now a McDonald's for 15 miles in every direction is nothing but, but infrastructure now. Um, so I think what we did is we released these birds and populations were just skyrocketing. And at the same time, our landscape was changing in a negative way. And those populations overshot where they were going to stabilize, which is very common when you release animals into a new environment. And they declined to where they could stabilize themselves. The problem is that level is much lower than where we want it. So we, th- we thought we'd be better off than we are, 
and we're not. We're we're lower than we want to be, and in some ways, we expected this, but I don't think many in the turkey world expected the populations to decline as they have, which has obviously created a problem for agencies because we, we don't have the populations at the levels that we want them in a lot of areas. Are we, are we getting to the point where we're going to cancel spring season in places? God, I hope not. Um, no, I, I hope I hope not, and I don't. I don't hear any agencies talking about that. N- not that I'm, you know, tied in with every agency. Um, but I don't. I don't hear that. You know, I think what you're what you're seeing is that agencies are trying to restrict harvest in some situations because they have to do something, and there's only certain things that an agency can do at a, at a statewide level, which is what they manage turkeys at. And harvest is one of those, it's the only thing that they can control at a, at a statewide level. So I think that's why you're seeing, you know, state, I know that's why you're seeing states that are, that are making changes and some of them are not popular, such as, you know, dropping bag limits to one bird. Um, I, I, I sure hope we don't, we don't go down the road of, well, we're just going to discontinue, you know, hunting this bird because that that would just be a, a catastrophic occurrence. This, I saw where uh, last spring the state of Oklahoma had like 15 hens that they put trackers on and stuff, and out of them 15 hens, and I, and I could be off on my numbers a little bit, I think only two actually had poults. Kind of remember that. Yeah, and I don't I don't remember the numbers either. I, I saw that work presented. Um, it, Coulter, the one of the researchers running that study, could tell us for sure. But um, but yes, it was like sub twenty. Let's just say fifteen twenty birds. Uh, only two of them hatched successfully, which is dismal nest success. If memory serves me, at least based on that one year of data, there were a fairly significant number of hens that didn't even try right. to nest, which is very common in Rio's actually. Um, and depending on rain, rain is good, you know, not in just massive volumes, but rain precipitation affects Rio's unlike any of the other subspecies. When it rains in the winter and early spring and everything's succulent and green, a lot of birds nest because they're in good condition and, and nest success is, is higher. When you go through drought cycles, which, as you know, Oklahoma has had a, a number, um, nest success is terrible. And, and a lot of birds don't even try. Basically, what turkeys do is when they're in poor condition, a lot of the hens hedge their bets for the next year because they're, they're supposed to be – they're a long-lived bird, relatively speaking. So – you know, she just says, eh, I'm not in very good condition this year. I'll just forgo it and I'll try again next year. And that's, uh, I think that's what some of the Oklahoma data showed. And we've seen that w- with birds in Texas. We've been studying birds in Texas for 20 years now with uh, actually 15 with GPS. You see the same trend. When it's super dry, you you see low nest initiation rates, meaning a lot of birds don't try you see low nest success and you see poor brood survival because when the, what few nests do hatch, the environment is just not conducive to those poults catching a lot of insects 
and being able to grow really quickly, which is what ensures their survival. So let's let's just take an arbitrary number. We'll take ten. We'll take ten hens. What is an exceptional year as far as breeding, raising young? What's average, and what is just abysmal? So I'll start. I'll I'll start about the average. So what we generally are seeing across the South is that, and this is this is, I'm going to say this is average, but this is not a good. This okay. is not a good average. Across our populations, we're seeing about 75% of hens will attempt a nest. Um, about 20 to 25% of those will actually hatch a nest. And about a third of those that do hatch produce a poult, one or more poults that lives that first month of Ooh. life. That's, so that's that, not very, that's that's not not very good. good. That, that's the average, Oof. though. A, a really good year, um, 90% nest initiation, meaning almost every hen tries, uh, 30 plus percent nest success, meaning, you know, a third or more. One of my study sites last year, we had 50% nest success, which is really good. Uh, brood survival is 40, 50%, meaning, you know, a lot of the hens that hatch are able to make it work and, and keep at least one of those poults alive for a month or more. And then on the flip side would be like what we just talked about with that, that single year of Oklahoma data, where you, you have low nest initiation rates, you have low nest success, you know, think 10%, 15%, something like that. And then you have almost no brood survival. Like, and, and that's not, unco- again, that's not uncommon in the Rio world where, in certain local areas, you just you either have a lot of production based on precipitation, or you have almost none. And you know, people think, well, that that sucks, but yeah, it does. It, it not only sucks for that year, it sucks for several right. years because that lack of production this year reduces the number of jakes you have, and then that reduces the number of two-year-olds that you have, which are most of the harvest. <clears throat> so you know, these this bad year is not just a one and done. It's a it's a bad year that that kind of carries over into subsequent years. How many, yeah, I mean that's it's a it's a it's a three year deal basically. So if you have two or three bad years in a row of no hatches, it don't take long to wipe out all your turkeys. I mean that's just the common deal here. And there, it's not like a quail. Like a quail we can have no quail here and then one year you can have a big wet summer and spring and all your quail are at hundred percent almost of what they've ever been at their peak levels. Turkeys don't come back that fast. Yeah, that's right. Because Bob Whites, you know, Bob Whites have a, basically it's, you know, some refer to it as an ambisexual mating system where you'll have a, you know, you'll have a hen that lays a clutch and then she lets the, the male incubate it and she goes off and nests again and either incubates it herself or has another male incubated. So, uh, you know, one female can produce multiple clutches that hatch in a summer and so they can literally go and, and they can do what in my world is called exponential growth. Like you can go from just a, a few to a lot in one growing season. Turkeys don't do that. They produce a single clutch and that's it. So even in a good year, the change in the population status is very modest compared to say a, a Bob white. Um, and in the Turkey world, you know, 
quail, a, a good friend of mine that studies quail here at, at UGA, and the running joke with him is quail are experts at dying. <laughs> you know, everything yes. eats a quail. Everything kills a quail. And they're, so their survival is supposed to be low. I mean, they're, that's, that's being a quail. But turkeys are not. Turkeys are adapted to living numerous breeding seasons so they can hedge their bets and try again. In the quail world, you got to get it, you got to get it while you can, because annual survival is, you know, way, way, way under 50%, you know, so most of your adults every year die. We were in, uh, Michigan along the, uh, Lake Michigan, actually around, right on it. And we saw quail. I mean, we saw turkeys everywhere, mm. all the little towns you'd see, mm-hmm. you know, strutting males. It was everywhere. And it's just crazy that when you get up to certain places, their 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 turkey population is booming, and you don't have to go very far to find it where it's just completely wiped out. And that's what that's what yeah. that's what confuses me on it being a man made pesticide deal because they're spraying the same pesticides up there that they are in Oklahoma, Texas, Georgia, Nebraska, Kansas, where the population is declining rapidly. Yeah, and that you know, to the point like I said earlier that there is not a smoking gun here. Mm -hmm. There's, I mean, there's not, there's not, there's just not, there's not one thing that's causing this. And, you know, a couple years ago, there, a lot of discussion got generated on social media about, uh, neonics, basically these, you know, pesticide laden seeds. And, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about, well, that's it. That's it. No, it's, there are populations declining in areas where that that's not even present in the environment. So, you know, I know what we want to do as human beings is this, because this is who we are as people, mm-hmm. we want the problem so that we can identify the solution. Yeah. And that is not the way this works. And I wish there was, I wish there were one thing that we could say, okay, stop doing that or let's do this. And it's going to solve the problem. That's just not the reality that we live in. So take me to when, when you put these uh, geo trackers on the birds. It, are, mm-hmm. do, when you get your hands <clears throat> on them, do they usually calm down or is it a rodeo the entire time? No, they, they calm down. I mean, as, as much as a bird that just had a rocket net fired <laughs> over their back can, you know, I mean, it, it, the reality is it's a stressful situation, but sure. what we do you know, we go to great lengths to try to get the birds handled as quickly as possible. We we put a hood on them, a crown royal bag, actually not plugging them. Works great because you can just lay it, pull it right over their head, and and you, you know we don't cinch it up or anything. A, a piece of a sock mm-hmm. works great. You just slide it over their eyes. Once you hood them, they are quite calm. Um, you, of course, if you you know, if you're manhandling them or you're squeezing them or something, you know, that's not good. But usually once they're hooded, you can kind of lay them in your lap. You hold their legs. You keep their legs straight so that they don't bend their legs up under them and, and try to push constantly. Right. If they do that, they can they can have problems. They'll usually just lay there. And what you want to do with turkeys is try to keep them as cool as possible. Heat is a real problem for turkeys. Cold is not. So if when you catch a bird, you know this, you kill a turkey, and three hours after you kill it, you start skinning it, and steam's rolling yeah. everywhere. They are, they are heat ovens, so when you catch them, you, you want to keep air moving around them. You don't want to hold them up under your arm constantly. And um, Yeah, and then we, 
they're calm. They're sitting in our lap or on a tailgate. We're holding them loosely. You put the GPS tracker on their back. You, you, you kind of tie it to them like a backpack. So you, you've got this parachute cord that goes under their wings and cinches it up on their back. It's loose. So it slides around. It can slide a little bit. It can go up and down. You don't want it too tight. It only weighs, you know, 80 grams. So it's, it's nothing to their body weight. And it just sits right between their, their wings. Um, you let them go, they fly off, and usually everything goes well. It doesn't always go well, but most of the time, if, if your field crews are well-trained and they're doing what they're instructed to do, then everything goes fine. Yeah. How far will they go <clears throat> once you, when, when, when you release them? Do they just kind of go to the next wood line? Are they going to the next property? How far will they... <clears throat> get away from that experience just to get away from you that's it that's it. Just, that's as far yeah. away yeah sometimes you'll see these wonky movements where you know you release them and they take off and go down the road a couple miles and then they come back but a lot of times they just they just get away from the immediate environment and they and some of this is when we catch the birds so most trapping is in the winter when they're in flocks mm -hmm. you know so we're catching them and in, in at least fairly small if not huge you know large groups so they're usually will just find each other again and settle right back down and go about their business as they did and and that doesn't take them very long in fact a lot of times if you if you're quiet which my folks are when you release the birds you know we don't do a lot of talking once you have worked together and you and you're trained well everybody knows what everybody's doing there there doesn't need to be conversations and if it, if there are they're muted uh, they're very you know quiet whispering hand me that syringe you know this whatever if you listen when you release the birds a lot of times you can hear them calling each other as soon as they get out of your you know they they usually fly off they'll fly off and then they'll land and they take off running out of your sight and usually if you listen you can hear them yelping and and assembly calling right after you release them. Yeah. I was just kind of wondering, like, you know, there's times where you bust a bird or whatever, and, you know, he runs away, and you're like, son of a bitch, how far is he going to run before he finally stops? Well, we have some data that, that are pretty crazy. We, we've had, um, so for one study I did, actually several we've done, we allowed, we asked hunters to carry GPS units in their pockets. And then, of course, we had, toms that had gps on them and we did have some instances where a hunter would bump into a bird and that bird would travel a mile or more Ooh. that day that day um we had several that's happened several times where the hunter and i've posted some of this on social media and uh does that happen every time right. no 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 right. it doesn't happen every time sometimes the bird gets bumped and he literally just goes out of sight and then figures out a way to get around the hunter and moves goes about his day but sometimes for whatever reason and i don't know the reason there are some situations where he hightails at a mile or or so and and gets out of dodge and and in some of those cases didn't come back Oof. like didn't 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 return to that area in fact i posted this one and it maybe this is you know maybe this doesn't happen a lot i don't honestly know but we did we did have this one bird i I think we've actually had three if memory serves me we had one for sure that that i've posted about because we have a cool map the guy got into him heard him on the we interviewed the hunter 
he got to the bird. Bird was roosted. Bird flew down. They kind of played cat and mouse for a little while. The guy got up and moved a couple of times, ended up busting the bird. He, the bird saw him. And that, that dude hightailed it about a mile, a little over a mile to the northeast, left the public land he was on and went to a private track that was adjacent. And he actually, that was like the second week of the season. He stayed there the entire hunting season on that private land and then returned to the area after the hunting season had closed. And we've, we've had several birds do this. That to me is really comical because that tells me that that bird had done that uh-huh. before. And he, you know, that, that's my suspicion. My, my gut tells me, you know what? That guy has done that before. And his reaction is, okay, yep, here these guys are in the woods again. You know, I just interacted with one of them. I know that nobody hunts on, and nobody did hunt on that property. I'll go over there and hang out. And when I stop here in trucks and gravel popping under tires and everything, then I'll go That's back. That's crazy because I've, I've, I've thought about that a lot. And there's some times where, you know, a turkey will kick my ass and I'm like, am I giving this bird too much credit or does he just really know what the program <laughs> is? You know? Both. Both. I think I, I do the same thing, man. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, I'm cussing and, you know, back at the truck. Like, Son of a bitch, I can't believe he did that to me again. Man, he's just got my number. No, he right. doesn't have your yeah. number, Mike. You know, I'm like, Mike, don't be so stupid. Yeah. He, he's just doing his thing. He's just reacting to his environment and he's trying to make a living by not dying, you know? So, has he experienced that before? Yeah, probably, you know, and does he know how to react to it? Yeah, but he's not, he's not thinking through, I mean, you know, he's not, Ooh, I think that that's a hunter. <laughs> I think that's no, Mike over there. He just, yeah, he just knows that that doesn't sound mm-hmm. right. You know, in, in fact, I'm reading a book from a, I'm going to start posting a, some of this on social media soon. Actually, I'm reading some of the classic turkey works from some of the pioneers that laid the foundation for me to come behind and and one of them um is a guy named wayne bailey who was kind of the godfather of restoration for turkeys he he trained people to trap and transport birds all over north america and in one of his books he wrote that if you kind of think about it from a turkey's perspective a lot of the things we do raise suspicion Right. So a hen doesn't sit in the same place and call for an hour right. and a half. Right. You know, so he, he was saying in his book, he's like, you know, we, to your point, Andy, he said, I think we give this bird too much credit in some, in some cases, because you're doing something that they don't do in their world and you're expecting them to not react mm-hmm. to it, which is nonsense. I mean, they don't, yeah, if you sit there and he's in a tree gobbling and you tree yelp to him and then you tree yelp 20 more times and then he doesn't fly down so you get more aggressive yeah. with him and he's just sitting in the tree thinking, okay, no hen acts like that. That's not something I've ever experienced. Therefore, I'm really skeptical of what's going on now. I think I'll just sit here for another 30 minutes. Right. And I've, I've done that. You've probably done that. You know, screwed 100%. up, and I was like, "Why hadn't this? Why hadn't this bird flown down? Why hasn't this bird flown down?" Well, he hasn't flown down because he's sitting there thinking something's wrong, something's not right. right. 
So instead of flying down and running into a potential problem, how about I just sit here and keep picking my environment apart to see if she actually walks over here. And if she doesn't, I'm flying the other way. Right. Yeah. That, I've, I've that happened last year to me, as a matter of fact. And that, and it was like, <clears throat> we were sitting there and I was like, I think he's still in the tree. But then, like, he would turn, and he'd, like, he'd be facing right at us. And I was like, no, that son of a bitch can't be in the tree. He's, he's, on, he's on the ground. Like, that's so loud. That's so loud. He's got to be off of the tree. He's getting closer. And then he'd turn in the tree. And it's like, son of a bitch, uh-huh. what is he going to do? What, like, and and it, was, it was well into daylight when he finally flew down. Yeah. I remember years ago when I, and I, I don't profess to be, a spectacular turkey hunter i think i i'd say i'm probably reasonably accomplished at it and the reason being is i just try real hard and i the the older i've gotten i think i hunt a lot smarter than i used to but i i remember one time as a as a young man walking in on this bird and he, he was just he was literally choking himself he was gobbling and i'm getting so excited and like I used to do, which I don't do anymore. I'm going to get to that next tree right yeah. there. If I can just get to that next tree, I don't know why I could have called him that extra 10 yards. I don't know, but I'll get to that next tree. And I got to that tree and he stopped gobbling. And like an idiot, I, I called to, I, I yelped to him and he shut yeah. up. And I was like, hmm. Okay, so I sit there and sit there and sit there and sit there. And right before fly down time, he gobbles, but he's facing away from me. And I thought, oh, gosh, man, he's, he, he's close, man. I, I probably can see this bird in a tree. And sure enough, I could. So, of course, he could see me or he saw something. That bird sat there until 9.05 wow. before he Ooh. flew down. And I, I had resigned myself. I said, I'm not leaving here until that bird flies down. Obviously, I don't want to spook him. Well, I'd already right. spooked him. Yeah. <laughs> I'd already screwed up, you know. In his world, he knew something was wrong, and he knew something was right there. And his pat, and when, ironically, when he flew down, he actually had moved around in the tree so that he could fly down. And I don't think he was going to fly down in that direction. I think he moved him. So he finally got impatient enough that he started moving in the tree. And he got to an adjacent tree. And once he got to the adjacent tree, then he flew down far enough to my left that I, I couldn't have shot him if I wanted to. And I, I've thought about that morning a number of times because that bird just sat there until he had surmised that he could get out a different way because he knew if he flew down, there was something that was, that was right. trouble to him. Yeah. It's, it, it's crazy. It's, it's, I'm okay with getting my ass whipped like that's, you know, cause I, I understand, you know, it's not like waterfowl. It's kind of a bittersweet moment when you pull the trigger and he's doing that flopping because that is one less Turkey for that property. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it, there's not going to be another migration. There's not going to be a cold front. That's going to push down another 10,000 birds. Like you got what you got whenever you're Turkey hunting, the resource is the resource. And if it's a bad hatch, you just took one more out of the environment. So I'm always kind of stuck in yeah. this this weird dichotomy whenever the trigger's pulled. It's paradox. Yeah. It's a classic paradox that, yeah, you're elated that you shot this bird, and if you, I don't know if this is what you do, but what I what I often do is, 
I'm not thinking about any of that paradox when nope. he's walking down nope. the gun barrel. I'm, you know, I'm resigned to this is about to happen. I'm going to soak up every second of this. I'm going to look at every feather. You know, I, I'm, and it doesn't always happen like this. But you know the scenario I'm talking about. He's he's coming right to you. It's all about to happen. It's it's 30 seconds away. I'm soaking up every one of those seconds. I'm looking at him. I'm in awe, and my heart's pounding and you know, then I'm on the site, boom, gun goes off, bird drops, hopefully, you know, I'll often put the gun down, say a prayer, reflect. And then the, one of the worst parts of the paradox is getting to the bird and realizing he's dead. And, you know, I, you know, you hear people like breathe life into him and so he could do it again. I don't kind of look at it that way. I, when I get to the bird, then you know, I'm admiring him for as long as I possibly can. And then the most difficult part of the turkey hunt for me is breaking the bird mm-hmm. down. That is the hardest part for me. I, I use every part of the bird that I can use, uh, including hearts, livers. Um, I, I hate making the first cut yeah. because they're gorgeous and they lose their beauty once once you break them down to the, you know, for the table. And it is, it's a classic paradox. I was hunting with Seth fighter, uh, last year. We were lucky enough. We got a bird and the way that he admired that bird, it was his first Rio. I bet he just sat with that bird for 10, 15 minutes. Like he, Mm -hmm. he inspected every single one of the, the, the tail feathers and the beard. I bet he looked at the beard 10 different times. But mm-hmm. I thought, man, this is a guy that gets it because a lot of times we'll take we'll take customers out and <clears throat> bam, let's go put it in the truck and let's go start drinking beer. But um, the way that he really, really admired it, um, we hunted for three days really, really hard. And then kind of on his, it was one of those last afternoon, he had a fishing tournament the next day that he had to get on the road for. And it was one of those kind of kind of a answer to a prayer bird came i mean absolutely perfect read the script but the way that he sat and admired the bird i was really really uh impressed with his uh post hunt ritual i guess it is yeah yeah i have i have buddies that that do that as well i i mean i i usually try to admire the bird as long as it's practical yeah um I also have, you know, I've, I've hunted with people that do the exact opposite and I've, and that's fine. Yeah. Hey, grab the bird and go. And I just, I've, I've always thought that, you know, you're missing a real opportunity to slow down a little bit. And, and I'm the world's worst at this in my life in general is, you know, people that know me well, will will tell you that, you know, I don't stop. I just, I'm I'll go, 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 go until it's time to go to bed and I, my feet hit the floor and I'm wide open until I, you know, that's, that's how I live my life and everything I do. And, but I don't do that turkey hunting. I used to, Yeah. I, I used to be the grab and go guy. And then I realized part of it is my job, but you know, as I've gotten older and more mature as a hunter, I've realized that there may not be another bird. Mm-hmm. So everyone you get a chance to come across, sit there and take your time and relax and, you know, reflect on the hunt, take some cool pictures, um, you know, just soak it up because hell, for all, you know, that, that may be your last bird. I mean, you just don't know. I mean, life is short and 
Um, there's only so many turkey seasons left. That's a, that's kind of the way I look at it. Is every time I cross paths with one of them, I'm blessed to do it. Well, and you're doing things in reverse, right? Like in nature, hens go to the hens go to the toms, correct? Yes. So I mean, yeah. you're you're already flipping the script on the way Mother Nature had this game written, and you're getting him to come to you. So why not sit there yeah. for an extra second? Yeah, I mean, in their world, you're you're forcing him to make a decision that that in most cases he would not naturally make, you know, he would, particularly if he's a dominant bird, he would stand his ground and, and you would come to him and that's the way it's supposed to work, which to some of these, you know, one of the, one of the passages that Wayne Bailey wrote is like, you know, if you think about it in their world, you're already raising their suspicion, right? begging them to come to you. I mean, so spring turkey hunting and fall hunting, if you, if you're calling the birds, in a lot of ways is, is suspicion raising from the start. You know, I mean, you're, you're already throwing it out there that, Hey, big guy, I'm not, you need to come this way. And in his world, he's like, wait a minute, right. you know, um, that's not the way this, this works, you know? And I, I think, it's, I think it's Tom specific too. you know, some of these birds, particularly two year olds, they don't have enough experience to even know, you know, we catch them as two year olds going into their first breeding season. And that's why two-year-olds dominate the harvest. They're stupid. Yeah. You know, they don't have the experience to know, to be skeptical of every blade of grass and every call and everything else. So they, a lot of times, you know, whatever, they'll run to the, to the call and, you know, rarely does an older bird do that. Do you like decoys or not? I Do I use them? Yes. In some cases, I don't use them on every hunt. Um I found with some of the the birds out your, out your way, you know, that sometimes having having decoys is helpful at, at attracting some attention. It's bit me in some cases. Um, I would say probably more most of the time I don't use decoys. Mm -hmm. Most of the time I just I just call and and try to set up in a situation where I get him to to come to a spot that he he's willing to walk to without seeing a decoy standing there type of thing. That being said, yeah, I mean, I've shot birds over, over decoys and I hunt with people sometimes that are religious decoy users. Um, I just, I kind of, I, I kind of just go with whatever, whatever the flow is. And, but I'll be honest with you. If I'm moving around a lot, decoys are pain. In, they're a pain in the ass. Yes. I mean, it, it just, it drives me nuts. Let's go pick that up, put it in the bag, carry the bag. Do, you know, a lot of times it's like, wait a minute. He just got, well, we got, we got to go, you know, and just boom, take off and, and go. So it really just depends. I, I've got too much waterfowl hunter in me. I've got to have decoys out there, but like, I know it's going to bite me in the ass. Like last year I was sitting in a place. It was like, it was like a pasture. This bird came screaming up goblin. I heard him way back into the property. He got to the fence line where he could see the decoys and he ran that fence line for 15 minutes. Goblin did not take another step, which obviously, you know, you got the fence doing whatever the hell it does in a turkey's brain, but would not cross that fence. Saw the decoys. He'd walk about 20 yards in either direction, gobble. And I, I know he was just waiting for her to come to him. I know that's what it was. But in my waterfowl mind, I'm like, come to the damn decoy, jump on this Jake, and let me shoot you. 
Yeah, and you know, decoys. On this is a question that obviously, and I, I know you've heard this as well. You know, if you want a polarizing topic in turkey hunting, talk about strutting decoys, reaping, fanning, you know, yeah. any of those techniques, and boy, you get people mad. Oh, yes, you do. Um, and you know, I have hunted over strutters. You know, Jake Deco I'll call them jake decoys whatever lay down hens i've hunted with guys that um that that's all that that's what they do they they put out the decoys and they use that the decoys in every situation they go to and i and i've hunted with guys you know like that and that's fine that's that's what they do i'm on their turf i'm with them i'm a guest or whatever it is um and i've seen decoys work just to a to a T and I've seen decoys not work to the point where had the damn decoy not been there, it would have been better off. Um, and in the science world, when you're, when I'm asked about, well, what effect did did, do decoys have? We don't know. We don't know. And people say, Oh, Mike, you're just being political bull. You know, no, we really don't know. We, what, what I think is occurring is that that the use of some decoys, particularly male decoys, is resulting in toms being shot that day that otherwise would not have died mm-hmm. that day. Now, and, and and people can debate that. That's fine. My own observations, I firmly believe that to be true. Right. That that guy was not going to die today. Now. Tuesday, he might have died. I don't know. But he was not going to die to, the, to that gun today without that decoy being there. And then I've been in situations where I literally thought if that had not happened, if that decoy was not there, that bird was going to, he was on his way, and then he got to where he could see that decoy, and he went, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Something's not, whatever it is in his brain, something's not right i'm not walking over there um and that's why when i get the question i I, all i can answer is is there a potential that decoy use could affect harvest yes um the only two ways it could would be if it affects when the bird dies the timing of the harvest and the rate at which we're killing toms if it doesn't affect the timing and rate and mean how, what percentage we kill, then it doesn't matter from a, from a biological perspective. It doesn't matter. If it doesn't change the timing of when we kill them and it doesn't change the percentage that we kill. It doesn't matter. Is there potential that it could? I, I think probably that, yeah, it could in certain situations, but we don't have the data to show it. Right. What about reaping? Because I am, I don't, I'm not a fan of it, and I'm definitely not a fan of it on public land. I think it's dangerous and foolish if you're behind a turkey fan on public property. You're asking for problems. But I, if you're on private land, it's hard to it's hard to to, to tell you what to do on private land. But <clears throat> I feel like it puts the hunter at an unfair advantage. Here's an. Is the same topic. So basically, okay, um, does the use of a fan? Well, first of all, I'm not a fan of, I'm not not I'm not a fan of fanning or reaping. Yeah. Um, just from the standpoint of, I 
I personally, and this is what a lot of states, this is a, a concern a lot of agencies have is it's such a, a danger yes. to you as a hunter. And I mean, you're mimicking what we're killing. I mean, you're mimicking the behavior of the animal we're trying to kill. And I, on public land, I, I, that just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me that, that it would be allowed. But to your point on public land, you know, I mean, on private land, you know, it is what it is. Uh, same question though. If, if the use of the technique doesn't change whether you philosophically agree with it or not, if the, if yes. the use of the technique doesn't change when the birds are dying and what percentage are dying, then does it matter that they died coming to a fan or walking into a food plot right. with a pop-up line on it? Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't honestly, from a scientific perspective. Right. And that's a question right there that is really hard to answer is is that like does this technique change these metrics that agencies care about i mean designing a study i've talked about this with colleagues is designing a study to really give rigorous data on that topic is extremely difficult bordering on nearly impossible and that's largely why we haven't tackled it is it's just i mean how do you design a project that exposes birds enough to this technique to see whether it influences when and how many are killed. Right. It's a tough topic. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, it's just like anything. You see it online and, you know, your automatic um, gut reaction is, well, this just works every time. But nobody's going to yeah. post a video when the reaping didn't work. You know, they're only going to doesn't work. It doesn't work all the time. It doesn't. Um, no. No, it doesn't. It, there are, and I don't, I don't, I don't fan or reap, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a scenario. Um, I was on a hunt last year, won't name who or where, um, I'm sitting there with one of the best callers in the world. He has got this bird coming to us. There's, there's several of us with a video running. This bird's on his way. He's doing the old five forward three back five forward three back he's on his way i mean he's he's gonna take him 10 minutes to get there yep. but he's on his way and again the calling was exceptional as it always is with him and suddenly this bird you, you see his you see his fan and all of a sudden his fan drops down and his head picks up and he takes off running at us from about 80 yards away and then so fast, the hunter could not react to the bird and, sh and get the bird, shoot the bird. The bird was past the hunter coming to a fan that none of us knew had been elevated. Uh -oh. And the bird literally ran, went absolutely haywire in amongst us, called all the hens to him behind us and was gone. And there was a situation where it probably should have worked, but it, but it didn't because you prompted something in this bird that you couldn't anticipate. And I, that's, and I, you know, I get uh, people criticize it and they ask, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts on it? I, my thoughts are pretty simple. Like in that situation, 
I saw it do something to a bird. The bird could not turn off. Right. He could not, he could not turn that reaction off. It prompted a behavior that in their world is not tolerated. I'm standing here with my hands. You're 75, 80 yards away and you dare. I'm a, I'm a dominant bird and you dare to throw a fan up in my <laughs> face. That gets your ass yeah. kicked in my world. And I'm coming to do it because that's what I do. I'm the ass kicker uh-huh. right here in this area. In that vein, I saw it with my own eyes and I've seen it before. That bird was prompted to do something that he could not turn off. Just like when you shoot a bird and he's got a buddy with him who's, they're not buddies. And, and you drop a bird and the guy beside him jumps on him and starts head pecking him and, you know, and flailing him and going crazy. And you get up. I, I did this the other year. I got up and walked over, up to a bird that was doing that and got nearly within arm's reach of him before. And had I, had I not spoke to him and kind of rushed him, I think he would have really? stood there. I have a video of a bird that a buddy of mine shot. Uh, he comes in, piles three times together. He drops the third bird. I told him, you know, the third bird is the looks like to be the biggest bird to me. Um, he shoots the third bird. The second bird, first bird runs off. Second bird jumps on the third bird that's now dying. He finally subdues him by laying on top of him, like squatted down on top of him and starts picking his snood up with his bill. And he, and the, the dead yeah. bird snood, picking the snood up and dropping it, picking the, the snood up. He drops his wings on both sides of this bird, laying on top of him and actually lays his head down on top of the dead bird's head and just lays there. And the person with me, is is whispering to me have you ever seen a bird do that and i was like i've seen a lot of this i haven't seen this this particular behavior and i'll never forget this i i started clucking at the bird to try to get him to you know just get out of here and you know so you know and he i'll never forget this he turns laying down and looks at me with the most evil sadistic in his eyes it was evil he was livid and but he didn't know what to do he had attacked this bird and head pecked this bird and there was a reaction in him that was so visceral that he the only thing i think this bird knew to do was to to lay down on top of his adversary and attack him by the head knowing the other birds not reacting, but I'm, I'm just going to keep on pecking at, I'm going to keep on, keep on, keep, I've got my body weight on him. I've won. And then he hears something in to his left and he looks at it and it it was (laughs) hatred. It was absolute (laughs) hatred in his eye. And I told the guy with me, I said, dude, you, you, you may never see anything like this again. Uh, and of course I'm I'm sitting here with a cell phone video on it, so it's not the best, but to the whole question of, you know, the, the decoys and the reaping and all this that we talked about is controversial. People get mad. And I'm sure somebody's li- going to listen to this and, and get mad at me. And that's fine. I just, I've seen it with my own eyes that some of these things trigger a reaction that the bird can't right. turn off. And at that, and at that point, it, it begs the question of, is that, a, is that the way that it needs to be done? And I'm not, I'm not answering that right. or judging it. I'm just saying 
that that's what causes me pause is when I see a bird do that, I'm, I'm thinking he, he couldn't, he could not turn that off. I mean, a human being is standing there over him. Yep. Um, uh, the ultimate form of predation, like the ultimate predator is standing there over him. Doesn't matter. Yeah. That those are the instances that cause me to, th- to think about it. And, and I don't have the answer, but that it's, it's, it's compelling. It's a to philosophical me. question. You know, it's, it's, do you want to, it's like decoying ducks and geese and pass shooting. Some people, Pass shooting's fine. Other people like to play the game of cat and mouse with ducks and geese. And sure. I mean, it's just a philosophical sure. question of what are you, ha, under what circumstances are you okay with pulling the trigger on this bird? If it's flying over you at 50 yards and you've got the, the firepower and that's what you want to shoot into that flock of snow geese, then whatever. Some people like to set out. Yeah. And, and I mean, e-collars. from the standpoint of, of this, of these techniques, if they're legal and, and there's there's no information information suggesting that they're changing these metrics that we've talked about. Then who am I to who am I to right. judge what someone else is doing legally, right? Um, on the flip side, as a turkey hunter and someone who's seen it with my own eyes, you know I, I'm in this constant conundrum. It's like well. Does it matter? I don't, I don't have the data to tell you that it does. Yeah. Does it influence the probability that that bird dies that day? There is absolutely no question in my mind that right. it does. And it can. Not always, but it, but it can. And then it begs the question, well, does that matter? And we just, we need, we need the yeah. data. Um, so, so the Tom's running around together. They are not buddies. They're just friendly adversaries until one of them makes a mistake is that is that kind of the relationship that they have together it varies from in some cases they're but they're brothers uh-huh. like they're they're true siblings hatched out of the same clutch and in some situations it's the exact opposite none of them are related to each other and within that you know within that group yeah there's a dominant bird and whether whether the birds that are under him are his siblings or half siblings or not related at all from an evolutionary standpoint is irrelevant when push comes to shove, which is why, I mean, which is why you see that behavior. I mean, how many times do you shoot into a group of toms where there's two or three of them and one, and when you kill the one, no, there's no reaction whatsoever by the other two. I mean, it, it happens a lot, right? So um, uh, they're, they're, they're tolerating each other. And then from, and this may be more than you're wanting to know, but there is research showing that the larger the group, the more successful, the, the more mating opportunities that the dominant bird in that group gets. So group size matters. And the reason it matters is more draws more attention, right? Mm-hmm. So if you got four or five toms sitting there strutting and gobbling and, 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 attracting hens that's better than two right Right. so logically you'd kind of think well you get into these bigger groups and they're not they're not buddies they're displaying because there's there's a fitness benefit to attracting attention if you're standing around other toms attracting attention 
then there's a chance you might get to breed. Right. Right. If the dominant bird's not present, maybe he goes over here. Maybe you watch one of the hens leave and you follow her. You get out of the eye of the dominant bird and you're able to, to sneak a, a copulation with a hen that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten if you were by yourself. Right. right. So it makes sense to hang out with other toms and be part of the process, even if you're not the dominant bird in the group. Kind of like being at a bar with your buddies. You know, maybe they're relatively yeah. good looking and you can attract a, you can attract a crowd of females, <laughs> you know, your yeah. big buddy goes guess, off and yeah. you know, he's yeah. dancing on the dance floor and it's like, Hey, I got this little sweetheart. She might not be a 10, but Hey, I'm not getting laid any other way. So let's have that. Let's, let's see where this goes. Yeah. Attract attention in the Turkey world that there's, there's pretty solid data showing that being part of a group is better than being by yourself. Right. The, the other thing that we've seen, which is really interesting, is there's we just did an analysis uh, on this that when you start shooting members of those groups, the survival of the remaining members declines. Oh, really? And that begs the question of, okay, well, so what's going on here? And, I, and what it appears is going on is you got this, let's just say we got three. You got three birds that are hanging together and you shoot one of the birds. The other two birds now change how they're behaving. Maybe they, one of them goes over here and hangs out by himself. And then one of them goes over here and hangs out by himself. Or they get together for a few days and then one of them takes a hike and goes a mile down the road. They become less predictable in how they behave. They're not doing the same thing every day that they were doing when there were three of them. And I think that's what's going on is you shoot one, the group changes its dynamics a little bit. And the next thing, you know, one of them ends up somewhere. He's not, he hasn't been, and he lives a few days and he gets shot. And then the third one now is completely alone and survive you know it to me it's kind of logical how it works out it's just interesting that it does because that would then translate to what we already knew which is bigger is better right so a big group of like say six toms i think that would be much less likely to happen because the group could could remain intact right. you know, right you could take multiple toms out of it and it could remain intact whereas if you only have three or two you shoot one the other one is alone now he's has to change how he's behaving. Now, how long can a dominant bird stay on top of the stay on top of the heap? <clears throat> you know, is there is there like a magical window of like three to six where the dominant bird is like? At what age does he can does he uh, lose his reign? Typically, when he dies. Really. So once he yeah. becomes the top the top bird in the in the woods, he usually keeps there. He's usually there until he dies. <clears throat> Yeah, unless, and, and a lot of this is based on work that was done decades ago. This is a hard question to get at because you need to, you either need to be able to see the birds, which obviously you can in a lot of cases. The work that was done was done on Rios, actually. Um, or it was, it's based on imprinted birds that are raised in captivity and imprinted to humans where you can, they think you're a turkey, so right. you, can, you can watch them behave. And yes, it, the da those data suggested that if you, if that bird, the dominant bird isn't removed, then once he establishes dominance, he stays there. Um, now, obviously, you know, things could happen. He could get injured. He could get 
you know, whatever, and not actually die. And those around him would perceive a weakness right. and, and, and assert their dominance on him. But all things being equal, as long as he is alive, he, he typically would remain dominant. Now that pecking order, does it get reestablished every year? So long as everybody is there that next, cause I'm assuming it's February 8th right now. Is that, that pecking order starting to iron itself out now, isn't it? It's been, they've been testing it for months now and they will continue to do so on into the breeding season. But usually by the time you start seeing strutters out and about and everything looks real calm inside that group, yes, dominance has already been sorted out at that point. And that's why you don't see constant fighting, everybody strutting, everything looks to be very calm. Well, that stuff was sorted out in November. Oh, that early. Right. Yeah, I mean, when when toms get in their winter flocks, they will they will assert dominance within those flocks, and then when those flock, so so in other words, you might have let's say you have ten toms that are together, you got a group of five and a group of five that joined mm-hmm. up. With well, a group of five, there's a dominant bird within that group, and then the other group of five, there's a dominant bird inside of that group, and when they get into winter flocks, uh, they just kind of chill out because, hey. Um, we're around other birds that we don't know. There's, there's no point in constantly bickering and fighting, but, but you'll see kind of this, you know, Hey, I'm not going to let this guy just keep doing, you know, I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to chase him. Usually that's within these groups that got together to form the bigger group, uh, rather than trying to fight everybody. Right. right? I mean, trying to, it doesn't really make sense to do that. So, so yeah, by the time like now, when you drive down the road and you see a group of strutters out and a bunch of hens, they're calm because dominance has already been asserted. Now, do hens go through a similar process to where they're they're the boss hen? Yep, hens do the same thing. They they have a pecking order within their groups, and same deal. You know, and if you if you get to watch turkeys in the fall, you see this. You see a lot of chasing and and constant contesting of resources and space and well she found something over there i'm going to go run over there and see what it is and and that's that's them sorting out that dominance so that once they get to breeding season it's a very orderly progression of what happens and what that is is the dominant hen breeds first and then breeding goes down the pecking and then when it's time to start nesting you see the exact same trend you see hen number one of this group she starts nesting today hen number two starts tomorrow hen number three is on friday hen number four sunday and it you see this very orderly progression that's the way it's supposed to function right the the dominance dictates and if you think about it in their world that caught that allows there to be no chaos that allows things to be very orderly and that's a positive from a from a reproductive standpoint because you want everything to happen quickly. You want everybody to nest quickly. And because if you do, nest success is higher, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if, if everybody nests within a short period of time, that's a good thing. So having these dominance hierarchies that structure their populations and makes everybody f- do what they're quote-unquote supposed to do and stay in line – that has fitness benefits for the entire group. Yeah. Um, 
I listen to a lot of Jordan Jordan Peterson, and he's always talking about the dominance hierarchy and how, and, and just like you said, creating order out of chaos. And it's just crazy that a bird has figured out a way that everything is orderly and everything is structured and everything is in this neat little box so that it's not just willy-nilly everywhere. And it's And it's, it's you know, it's funny because they start doing that when they're a couple days old. Really? I mean, yeah. I mean, poults will start asserting dominance over one another when they're very young. And, and those pecking orders dictate their entire life. Like... There's, there's constant testing of each other from the time they're very young until they become whoever they are in the population, in that group, whether they're dominant birds or not. That is something that influences their day every day of their lives, is dominance. Yeah. Where, where are you in the pecking order influences every day of your life. So if you think about like some of these things we've talked about, you know, why did the bird react that way when you shot the other mm-hmm. bird? Well, geez, I mean, he's two years old. And so for, you know, every day for two years, he's been shaped by this guy that's beside yeah. him, right? That, that has been head pecking him and jostling with him and pushing him down the pecking order two years in a row from the time he was two days old. Damn it. He's, he's down. This is my opportunity. Right. And that's, that's why they, they can't turn it off. If you will, it's like, man, I've been dealing with this every day and now the, the button just got turned and I'll have an opportunity to move up in this pecking order because dominance matters. So I'm taking it out on my, on my buddy, if you will. Now, at what age is it where we'll start seeing a bird make it from next year. What's the, what's kind of the, uh, the, um, danger point that they get, that they grow out of to where it's like, okay, I'm a viable bird and my odds of making it into adulthood are basically a hundred percent. We used to think that if they could make it to two weeks, when they start, when poles start roosting off the ground, we used to think that that was, if they can get there, that's pretty good. They got a pretty good right. shot. And if you read any older text, they, that's what it said that once they're flighted, they're good. And unfortunately what we've seen is that's, that's not the case that you will continue to lose poles when they're three weeks old, four weeks old, five weeks old, do they die as precipitously as they do when they're a week old? No, but one thing that we're seeing and we just don't understand what is going on. Females hens for, for reasons we're we're getting close. I think to having a pretty good idea of what's going on, but we're not quite there. They are not making it into the fall population in many of our Southern areas in other words when we go catch birds in the winter groups of hens we often don't catch any juveniles that were hatched the the previous summer and if we do it's not many um whereas you see jakes commonly in, in some of these same populations so there does appear to be a sex bias that the juvenile hens are not making it proportionately like the juvenile males are um, 
So to your question, again, we used to think two weeks yeah. is good. Now my my the, the data suggests to me that it's it's later in the summer that there's there's mortalities that are continuing to occur later after that two and three and four week period that are being reflected in our trapping data because our trapping data are essentially mm-hmm. unbiased. You shoot a net over 20 hens and you catch 18 of them. If two of them are juveniles and 16 of them are adults, even the two that you missed, if they were both juveniles, which who knows, it still doesn't change the fact that there's almost no young birds in these hen flocks. So that there's something going on there and we're, we're trying to, piece that so together. So your best guess right now, I know it's not finalized, but why do you think that there's a, a sex sex bias here? I think what's going on, so there was a there was a researcher years ago named George Hurst who studied turkeys for much of his career and um and I did worked under him as well and he would just say that, you know, when times get hard, meaning brood habitat conditions or, or condi- environmental conditions are bad that the jakes went out in other words and what he was what he meant was when you get a poult that's say you know small chicken size and they're hanging around the the hen let's say they're two three weeks old um and you get cold you get rain you get stressed whatever it is these birds gravitate towards the hen and George's point was there's only so many birds that can get up under that hen uh, around that hen when she's brooding when when you get in a pinch you go Uh to mom and you can only fit about four (coughs) of those birds on under her and George's point was in a bad year he thought most of those birds that got that were able to make it work and stay and compete against their other brood members were right. males. They were bigger, they grew faster, they were stronger, they were more aggressive. And as an aside, our average brood size in the summer uh, across most of my study sites is 3.5, just under four birds. My suspicion is that as brood habitat has de- continued to deteriorate in quality, we that's as I travel around, that's the number one limiting thing I see from a habitat perspective is quality brood cover because it is very specific. It's not like nesting cover where if she can hide in it, she'll nest in it. Um, and I think probably what could be happening, just my hypothesis is that these birds are hatched. Uh, they don't have good brood habitat. You start seeing poult death, uh, there's not as many insects in, in the environment as they need. They're not growing as fast as they should. Therefore, they're not flighted as soon as they should be. They spend more time on the ground. They spend more time foraging than they should. And what that does is it causes their growth rates to slow down. Um, and when times get tight, which they are every year in the South, there's only so many birds that are going to survive out of that brood, and they're going to be mostly right. males. That would make sense. That's what I that's what I think's going on, which would then allow harvest in the spring 
to either stay the same or decline at a different rate than the female portion of the population was was declining. In other words, if you were producing mostly males that were surviving, then your harvest could hold on, if you will, while your female flock was declining at a greater rate than your male flock. Does that make sense? Yes. And I can't prove that, but I have enough data to at least make me look at it and go, that is a plausible scenario. Not saying that's what's happening, but it's plausible. That could be at least part of what's going on is that. And if so, it would help explain some of the data we have where we've had populations declining in some areas, but the harvest wasn't declining it that much. Right. Like it was either staying the same or it was just declining really just, a, you know, very slowly through time. Maybe that's, maybe that's an explanation. Yeah. That, that would make uh, quite a bit of sense actually. So, um, last, last question. I know you're a busy man and we've gone uh, over an hour and a half. I'm fascinated by, uh, all of this stuff, but, um, <clears throat> the birds that I did not shoot last year, are they going to be waiting for me this year? And are they thinking of me? Like I am thinking of them. <laughs> uh, well, I'll answer the second one first. No, they are not <laughs> thinking about you at all. Um, they are hoping they don't interact with you. Yeah, I understand. It's, it's, but your first question, uh, yes, we we just published an, an article, a peer-reviewed article, using a, a massive data set of of GPS and and telemetry mark males, showing very very clearly that spring harvest is an additive source of mortality. Meaning, if you don't shoot them, they will be there next year. Good. So, yes, if you if you don't get a crack at a bird and you're like, you're bummed at the end of the season and damn it, I wanted to kill him so bad. Chances are he'll be there next year. Just give it another go. What's the upper limits of how old a wild Turkey will make it before it naturally most, gets out of the, ecosystem? yeah, most of the birds that we have marked as Jake's meaning we, we cat caught them as a, you know, as a, as a young guy put a band on him and then the band is you know somebody shoots the bird down the road um most all of them are give we are reported by the time they're four or five okay um that being said i personally have in our data set we have had toms that were seven eight nine years old but it's that's not common right about five years yeah. old is the upper limit. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. And and that you know, that should that kind of makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you you know, most of the birds that are Jake's are shot when they're two. Uh-huh. If if they're going to be killed, most of them are killed when they're two. So if if when we looked at the data that we had, about fifty percent of all the Jake's that were going to be shot were shot when they were two years old. You know, they were shot when they became a two year old, about half of them. And then from there on, it's like, you know, 25% were shot as a three year old, 15% were shot as a four year old. And I don't remember the actual numbers, but this, I'm, I'm, I think I'm pretty close. And then some very small percentage were shot as five year olds. So what's going on is some of those birds are truly living to be five and are being shot some of them are dying of old age. Right. Yeah. (laughs) 
you know, either dying of old age or being killed by a predator at some point. Yeah. Are you going to be at NWTF? I will. Perfect. Yep. We're going to be there too. I'd love to uh, shake your hand and uh, buy you a beer or something or continue this conversation. It's, it's been very, very fascinating. Um, I love um, getting off into the weeds about these things. So um, I'll hunt you down at NWTF and at least shake your hand and introduce myself. So, Yep, I'll be there. I'm speaking. Uh, I'm speaking on Thursday at the opening event, and then I'm speaking twice on Friday. No, twice on Thursday in a in a research session that anybody can attend, and then again on um, on Saturday at a kind of a Q and A that we've got a Q and A set up where people can come and just ask any turkey question, and we'll try to answer it. If we can't, we'll just say. I don't know, <laughs> you know, that type of thing. But uh, that's actually Saturday at eleven fifteen is the Q and A, and it's in you'll it's uh, it'll be on the agenda. Anybody can come, and if it last year it was it was really good. It was well attended. People had some awesome questions about, you know, some of the things we've talked about and many other topics. It was it was it was pretty Man, cool. I'm trying to think of what it would be like hunting a place that's got geotrack turkeys on it. Like if I had that data on my phone, I could be like, oh, that son of a bitch, he's just right around the corner. So you you targeting? Yeah, we don't we don't. Yeah, no, we don't, I know that. <laughs> we don't make it available. No, yeah. I know that, but I don't know if I'd like that or not because then I'd realize how many times I'm getting stood up. Like, <laughs> oh, he was here I and would. he just didn't even play the game with me. That might be that might be a big bummer. I uh, I'll give you a parting a parting thing uh, before we go. Is years and years ago when we were putting the first GPS prototypes out we had to get the unit back off the bird to retrieve the data. Uh-huh. Right. So, and we were trying to perfect these units. We, you know, we were, we were trying to perfect the technology. So we had put three out on three toms on a, a public hunting area and two of them had been killed. So we had gotten the data back and, and the, they worked great and we were jazzed up about it, but we, we hadn't gotten that third bird. So we actually took telemetry gear and went and hunted that bird. And even knowing exactly where he was at all times, uh-huh. knowing how close he was to us, knowing er- that he was there, he was coming, he was to the left, he was to the right, he walked away. We never killed that bird. <laughs> and honestly, at the end of the day, it, I I sat there with the, the student that was with me, and this was later in the day, and we were just so, to be honest with you, we were pissed off, and we, yeah. were, we were tired. Here. And we just sat against a tree and talked for a long time. And I remember telling his name's Justin. I, I remember saying, Justin, this was not fun. <laughs> like, this was not fun. And he goes, no, this sucked, man. <laughs> and I was like, you know, it it really did. It sucked. It sucked knowing he was right yeah. there and yeah. it, it wasn't coming. It sucked knowing, okay, he's going to the left. It's like, okay. yeah, all the anticipation was gone right. and it was a job, you know, and it's like, I don't yeah. So I I don't even want to see you. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Well, uh, be safe traveling to Nashville and I'll bump into you next week. Thank you so much for your time. You've been more than, uh, more than generous with your time. So thank you. Not a problem. It's good talking to you. Thank you so much. We'll see you you next week. Go dogs. Go dogs. Yep. All right. See you soon. Wild Turkey Doc on Instagram. That, um, is where you can find him. He's going to start said he's going to start posting more research on uh, social media. So turkey season's right around the corner. I'm fired up about it. I've got a lot of amends to make from last year. 
I ate tag soup. <clears throat> you ate tag soup, huh? Yep. All right, I got to get out of here. I got to talk to a kid that's going to be on here from South Africa that go. uh, has gotten ran out of his farm, his family's farm, and they pretty terrible story. We're going to have him on and talk. <laughs> pretty awful story. It's a, pretty, it's a horrible story about what happened to him. I've got a, uh, I've got a cousin that's married to somebody. Similar story. Well, we're going to have this guy on, and hopefully next week, get it on before Turkey. If not, come by and see us. We'll be at the <sighs> Boss booth. Come by and see all of our sponsors will be at the podcast or at the Turkey Convention. Look forward to seeing you. Peace. Bye. Goodbye. Love you. Bye. Watch for deer. Check out all of our great sponsors. Go check out Double T British Kennels, Mossberg, Stanfield Outfitters, Alpha Outdoor Specialties, Hemp Hill Farm. Use the promo code BHP. Uh, Ducks Unlimited, Lucky Duck, Looking Glass Podcast, Shin Gear, Dirty Duck Coffee, Dive Bomb Industries, Specific Calls, BHP 25, Boss Shot Shells, and MLR Graphics.